That's Acts chapter 17, verses 24 to 31. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morley, thank you very much for that. And good to see you all here. Hopefully you do have a Bible nearby or a phone or something like that that you can get it up on. And maybe you have one of these handouts, which is less important, but that's just got some interesting references to go away and look up in your own time and gives you a little sort of through line of where we're headed and you can see sort of how far through uh, we are as we go. Now, you'll see from here, let's see if this is this working. Yep, there we go. It's called Doctrine of Creation 2. And you're thinking, hang on, when was Doctrine of Creation 1? Well, it was three months ago, so I'm sure it's really clear in everybody's memory, isn't it? Yes, we all remember that, like, no. Uh, I was supposed to do this session three months ago, and then unfortunately got ill. Uh, And so there was a gap in the evening uh, service uh, schedule this term, and we thought it would be a good time to bring this here. So I will do a little recap of session one. And therefore, it is slightly out of sync with the rest of the series in one sense. You know, how can Christians expect to be different? And yet, as I was pondering it again just this afternoon, I realized, in one sense, it it goes underneath why Christians live differently and think differently to everyone around them. Because to think about what it means to live in a universe that is created, and what it means to be a creature has enormous implications for all of us in all sorts of different ways, all sorts of different areas. And I do think, and I said this in session one, I do think creation is something that as a church and as Christians in general across the UK and possibly more widely than that, but I have any knowledge of the UK, we don't think about often enough, what it means that God is creator, what it means that we are creatures, and what that means for our lives. I think it is an incredibly serious, incredibly important 
doctrine, teaching of the church, and one we would be wise to think about more often. And so just to rebalance that up a little bit. We're going to do a little bit of thinking about it tonight. I've realized I've got loads of things on that sheet, loads of content. We can only scratch the surface. There's so much more one could say, but we'll see where we get to uh, through the course of the evening, and there'll be a few little bits where I'll get you to break out into twos, threes to chat in groups where you are, um, give you a rest from my voice, uh, if nothing else. But hopefully, there'll also be interesting discussions. Right, now, just to do a bit of a recap on session one. We spent a lot of time thinking in session one about the difference between creator and creation. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth is a way of saying everything. So right from verse 1 of the Bible, it gives us a foundation which says there's only two kinds of things that exist. God and stuff God made. That's it. That's all that exists in the universe. God and stuff God made. And what this is saying is God is uncreated... There is no creator behind him. Uh, He has always been. He is. He is a fact by definition. And he created everything else. And we we spent time thinking about how he did that from nothing. It wasn't that there was like pre-existing matter that he fashioned and formed and shaped. Uh, No, there was nothing. And God brought everything that exists into existence by an act of his will. He willed it to be, and it was. And that is huge. Uh, There is nothing else in our experience or our knowledge of the universe that is anything like creation. Anything else we look at, study, think about is one thing becoming another thing. Even the Big Bang, right? It's, It's You have this quantum singularity, which is not very well defined, Uh, we're not quite sure what life was like back then, and then something happens to it, and then you get a universe. Creation's not like that. Creation is the state of nothing existing and everything being brought into existence by the will of God. And he did it all for his glory, that the universe is the theater of God's glory. It is all there to worship and praise him. And this, this sort of teaching is summed up really nicely in Revelation 4.11, which really is a key text. It's one that you can meditate on for several hours and get a lot out of. And this is what it says. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. And I said last time, and I'm going to say it again, I'm not really here to talk about science. There are eminent scientists in this room who could do a much better job of that than me. I'm here to talk about theology. I'm here to talk about what it means that God is our creator, we are his creatures. And today in particular, we spent a lot of time last time thinking about what that means, what it means to be created from nothing. Uh, Today we're going to think about why it matters. Uh, What difference does it make to our lives and the way we think about the world, life, the universe, and everything? I've shown this diagram before, uh, this little idea of a worldview, and you've got different questions that form your worldview. Who is God? Who am I? What is the world? As you answer those questions, you're starting to shape a a vision of what you think life is and what it's all about. Creation goes right to the heart of those questions. 
tells us more about who God is, tells us more about who we are, tells us more about what kind of place this world is. So we're going to have a look through some of the implications of what it means that we are creatures. What kind of world does that mean that we are living in? Well, it it means we are living in a created world that is all created by the will of one good God out of love as a free gift. The universe, creation, is a gift. God did not have to create. He did not have to create a universe at all. He didn't have to create Tim Wickham. He didn't have to create any one of you either. It is a free act of love. Creation is a gift that God was under no obligation to give and gave in freedom and love. And that means Christians are going to think differently about what kind of place this world is in comparison perhaps to people around. Uh, There are lots of other options for what kind of place this world is. Uh, Some people believe this world is, uh, believe in fatalism. That is, the whole universe is wound up like a big clock and just set off going and that's it. And it'll just run its course. And of course in a universe like that, none of us are free. None of us have any responsibility for anything we do. We're all just molecules and atoms colliding around, bouncing from one thing to the next. Um, you find that a bit in like Richard Dawkins, if you read some of his work. That's what he believes. DNA, we just dance to DNA's music, is a famous line of his. Uh, we're not in control of anything. There is no real ultimate purpose to life, the universe and everything. So that is an idea that's out there. Another idea, maybe more popular, is that the universe is just a kind of fluke. It's a lucky accident. <laughs> just happened. Cosmic car crash and, oh, the universe. There you go. Um, And both those views actually share a lot in common. In the end, in either view, we're not responsible for anything. And life doesn't have any deeper meaning. But if creation is a gift, given in love by a generous giver, undercuts that, doesn't it? You are responsible. When someone gives you a gift, you're responsible for how you use that gift, for how you take care of it. Uh, You're responsible uh, to show a right response of of gratitude. You're responsible uh, in all sorts of ways. And there is a meaning and a purpose because it's given in love. Uh, It's bound up with the sense of a relationship and what matters more than those things. So creation as gift rules out a couple of those options. Uh, Here's another way people look at the world. Uh, It's got an ancient name called Manichaeism. I call it the Star Wars heresy. Um because most people don't know what Manichaeism is, but um, Manichaeism is this ancient view that basically you've got the light and dark, good and evil, and this cosmic balancing act. There's uh, 50% of each in this constant struggle. Uh, Neither will ever get the upper hand over the other. You know, they're just in constant warfare, good and evil. And, of course, that's Star Wars, the light side and the dark side of the force and all that, and this constant balancing act. And, um, of course... Our understanding of creation rules that out because it's all created by the one good God. Good and evil are not two equal and opposite forces in the Bible's thinking. Good wins. Good will always win. There is no opposite of God. In the Bible's thinking, the devil is a creature. Powerful creature, more powerful than us, but a creature. He's not the opposite of God. There is no opposite of God. In the end, good 
is more powerful than evil and will overcome it. Because it's a good, the universe is a good love gift from God. It has a hopeful future. That's powerful, isn't it? What kind of world is this? It also rules out this being a polytheistic universe. So I call this the sleeping beauty syndrome. Okay, so uh, in the reading in Acts, uh, it all starts off that speech from Paul that we just looked at, where he, he talks about, uh, you know, the one God who made everything. He's responding to walking around the city and seeing it full of statues to these different gods and goddesses that people worship, and he even finds one that says, to an unknown God. And of course, why do they make an altar to an unknown God? Because if the universe is just filled with all these gods and goddesses, you've got to keep them all on side, haven't you? You've got to keep them all on side. Now, if you know the original story of Sleeping Beauty, what happens is they have a christening party for the little girl that's born, and they forget to invite one of the fairies. And because they forget to invite one of them, they curse the baby, and she falls asleep. That's life in a polytheistic universe. You've got to keep all the gods on side all the time. Because if you don't, oh, one of them could come and get you. Imagine what it's like to live in a universe like that. Full of anxiety, right? All the time. That's why you build an altar to an unknown God. And Paul says in that speech, no. There's one God who made everything. You don't need to be this safety first, have I kept everyone on side kind of thing. Uh, Not deism either. Deism was very popular in the 18th and 19th century a while ago. Uh, Very sort of understanding the universe uh, as a clock, a mechanism, uh, and that God sets it all in motion and then he's very far apart and distant. Well, again, Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. God is not distant or remote. We all exist and are held in existence every moment by his will as an act of his love toward us. That is not a remote God. And I've just put there, and this is about the only thing I'm going to say on science. This means there is no conflict with science. Um, God is the one who created all the physical states that exist out of nothing by his will. And because they were created by a good and a wise and an intelligent God... They have a wisdom and an intelligibility bound up within them. And that makes science possible and desirable in this universe because God has given us this gift to explore, to investigate, to understand, to know. And therefore, science is both desirable and possible. And in fact, the history of modern science is it was founded by Christians. As we understand science today, the Royal Society... Uh, was founded by Christians because they understood that God was a lawgiver who set certain rules and logic in the universe because they understood the universe as this gift that had been given to us by this all-good, sovereign, and wise God. Uh, And one more thing just to say, uh, and this really should have been in the polytheism bit. Polytheism means the universe is inherently a violent place, lots of conflicting forces, lots of conflicting gods and goddesses at war, But in Christianity, there is one God who creates everything in love 
And therefore, at base, the universe is meant to be a place of peace and harmony. Now, the Bible explains why things have gone wrong from that original design, but it also explains that one day we're headed back there. And because there is just one God over it all, our final destination is secure and certain. We don't live in a universe where ultimately violence and conflict will have the last word, but where love peace and harmony will. So there's so much there that you can get out of life as a gift. Uh, Some of it's big picture stuff, but some of it is that individual notion of you being held in existence moment by moment as a gift. The people and places that you have around you are a gift that God has given you. The world and your community are gifts that God has given you. I've not put this on the handout, but just give us all a little break from my voice. Why don't you have two minutes talking to one or two people nearby, do you think of the universe as a gift often? What helps you to think of it as a gift from God and your life as a gift from God? And when do you struggle? Maybe just spend a couple of minutes thinking about that, whether that's an idea that you really dwell on often. Let me break in there. Apologies, I know. Whenever you do one of these things, You have to interrupt because otherwise we'll be here all night. But there are lots of opportunities to continue discussions if the particularly interesting one crops up. Uh, We're going to move on to the second heading there, which is to talk about the right to rule. Okay, so creation means, the doctrine of creation means this world, this universe, us, our lives, everything is a gift. And that might sound quite cuddly and nice. This one is a little more challenging. Because if one God made everything out of nothing, then what we're going to see is some of the consequences for what that means for how we relate to him. And and this is the topic of uh, God's sovereignty. That's his rule of the universe. Now, what gives anyone the right to rule? We've seen this in recent years in politics. And if you have any kind of memory, you can remember lots of instances of it, probably. But largely, I think there's a consensus that in order to be a true sovereign, to have a true right to rule, you need to be both an effective ruler and a legitimate ruler. So you see this politically sometimes when a a party has maybe won an election at some point and then lost a few by-elections along the way or something like that, and they're suddenly a minority government... And they can no longer pass their legislation. Well, technically, they're still a legitimate government because they were elected. But they're no longer an effective government. They can't do anything. So the second that happens and you're in a minority, suddenly the calls come, don't they, from the opposition. You need to hold a general election. You need to hold a general election. You can't get your thing through. You're not effective. You need to have a general election. If you're going to rule, you need to be effective. But then effectiveness isn't enough, is it, on its own? Legitimacy is important as well. One of the modern phenomena we see online is what people sometimes call a social media mob. And people crowd in on social media and attack somebody and go after it and try and say, get something done. And often somebody will cave and it'll happen. Very effective. But when you watch that happen, there's a bit of us that, doesn't feel comfortable with it. Because actually, why do they, that group of people on Twitter, it's called X now, isn't it? But Twitter or um, Instagram or whatever it is that they're on, why do they have the right? 
Actually, in our modern world, it is that second one, the legitimacy box, that's much more debated today. It's not about whether you can get your will done. It's what gives you the right to tell me what to do. That is a big question in today's world. What gives someone the rights? You might have heard of something called postmodernism. Uh, they say that all truth claims are just power plays. Uh, some people within that movement of postmodernism, uh, truth claims are just power plays. In other words, you don't actually have a right to claim this or that to be true. You're just trying to push your power on me. You, you might be effective, but there's no legitimacy behind what you're saying. And so, it's not a surprise that we live in a world where we have a bit of a crisis of legitimacy. Who has a legitimate right to rule? So, I'm going to get you to be in groups and to do a, a sort of thought experiment. You're talking to a friend, uh, someone who knows you're a Christian but they're not, and they say to you, why should I listen to God? What gives him the right to tell me what to do? Spend a few minutes. How would you reply to a friend or a colleague or somebody who said something like that to you? Why should I listen to God? What gives him the right to tell me what to do? Back to you. I wonder where your discussions have got to. And I wonder what you've heard as an answer to that question before, either answers you've given or answers you've heard someone else given. I wonder if you've ever heard an answer like this. I think I have heard, at the end of the day, God's going to judge everyone. So because he's going to judge everyone, you're going to have to listen to him. And of course, there's a truth to that, but that is very much in the he's effective column, isn't it? And and I don't know about you, but it leaves me feeling a bit cold, that answer, because I'm like, yeah, okay, he might be more powerful and then strong enough to get us to do his will, but does that mean he's actually got the right to do it? Does that actually feel a good answer? Well, as it's a session on creation, you might have twigged where we're going to go. But let's see this imagined conversation. You might not be able to see this, but I'll say, so this is, this is the person who's asking the question. Maybe this is the conversation you've heard as well before. What gives God the right to tell me what to do? Because God saved us in Jesus. Okay, let's take a different tack. Not judgment, but salvation. God saved us in Jesus. Saved from what? Well, from sin and ultimately his judgment. Why is he going to judge me? Because we rebelled against him. Hang on. Rebel implies he has a claim on my obedience. Why does he have a legitimate claim to tell me what to do and expect me to obey? Well, don't you feel grateful for being saved? Well, grateful maybe. But if a fireman rescues me from a burning building, I'm not required to obey them forever afterwards. You see where the conversation might go. And yet, sometimes we struggle with a question like that, don't we? Oh, hang on, Jesus is really lovely and kind, and he's, he's you know, saved us and all the rest of it. And doesn't he? But what gives him the right? And you can start to sympathize with the objector. Until. You remember creation. Because creator, from nothing, remember, 
implies owner. If he made us from nothing, he owns us. We belong to him because we only exist by his will. Not just me saying that, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's. That's the language of belonging. And everything in it. So are you in the earth? I am. That means I belong to God as well. Why do we belong to God? The world and all who live in it. Why do we belong to God? For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Because he is the creator, he is the owner. And because he is the owner, he has a legitimate right of ownership. And that right is total because he created every bit of you. Remember, because you came from nothing and I came from nothing. We are. You don't own a gift? No. But life and the universe is a gift given by God. But he's still holding us in existence every moment by his will, right? So as creator, he is owner. He may have given it to us to enjoy, but he's still the owner of it. So, as owner... God's rights are total, which is what makes sense of some of the commands of Jesus. So here's the point. Um, in our modern world today, um, one, what, one popular thing that people will say is, you can do whatever you want as long as you don't harm someone else. Do whatever you want, as long as you're not harming anyone else, that's fine. But then Jesus comes along and says, even your lustful thoughts or your angry thoughts are going to be judged. You think, whoa. Uh, Why does God, A, care about that, and B, how does he have a right to speak into that? Well, the only answer is because he made us and he owns us. Why does God have the right not just to judge our actions, but our thoughts? Because our synapses belong to him. Because our neurons belong to him. And to use them in a way that he has not designed them to be used is vandalism. This is challenging, and yet I think it is what Jesus would teach, what the Bible generally teaches, the earth belongs to God. So, if that's true, and the Bible says that it is, that is challenging for us. Okay, so that's the right to rule. Let's move on to the next thing, which is our human identity. Oh, just one more thing on the right to rule, actually. 
And um, I think it is important to say this. I'm not surprised that that's when the challenge came. Because that's the thing that really grates us. And again, that's what Jesus says to us. So in the parable of the workers in the vineyard, uh, you might know this parable in Matthew 20. It's a reference on the sheets. Uh, And Jesus tells this parable, and he hires some workers, and he agrees a wage for a day. And then three hours later, he he hires some more workers. And he he says, I'll pay you whatever's fair. And then some more workers later on. And then some people who just work for an hour at the end of the day. And then he brings in the ones who've only worked an hour, and he gives them the full day's wage. And then at the end, the people who worked from the start, he gives them the same. And they complain. They say, that's not right. It's not fair. And the owner of the vineyard says, I have the right to do what I want with my own property. I'm not doing you wrong. You agreed. And they hate it. And he actually says, is your eye evil because I'm good? So I admit this is a challenging idea, the right to rule, God's sovereignty. I don't like it a lot of the time. (laughs) And I'm not surprised that this is the one that gets under our skin. But I think it is an implication of the doctrine of creation. And it is an important one for us to bear in mind. Right, we're, we're massively behind time. So I'm going to just quickly run through a couple of things. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about human identity. And uh, human identity is one of the biggest questions uh, around today. And uh, what do all these things mean? That, that, that God has given us life, that he uh, had no need to do so, uh, that it is a free gift in that sense. He maintains his rights over it. But what does that mean for us as human beings? Well, responsibilities come before rights. We do have human rights, and I believe human rights are founded deeply in the idea that we are all created in God's image. But actually, more basic than that, if our life is not something we gave ourselves or deserved or earned, and it is something that has been given to us freely, then our responsibilities come first. Responsible to God and responsible to others as those God made and loves. Uh, Important to remind ourselves of. I am going to get you to do something in groups for just a couple of minutes. Uh, page 628 in the Bible, and uh, Psalm 139. Uh, yes. And I want you to think about what does God know about David, and how does it make David feel that God knows this? Because this is going to be an important thing that I just want to say about identity. Let me break in again. Apologies. Um, Now, maybe you got that sense that God's knowledge of David is total and complete. He knows everything, before, behind, uh, before he was born, every word before it's on his tongue. uh, And David thinks that's amazing. That knowledge is wonderful. 
Because not only is he known by God, he is loved by God. We are not alone. I was doing an interview on a Christian radio station this week talking about student loneliness, and, and it, it does affect a lot of first years when they, they come, you know, come to a whole new place, a whole new town, uh, don't know anybody, loads of stuff thrown at them, all the rest of it. It can feel disorientating. Uh, it's, there's, it's not just students, of course, and we're wrestling with this more and more since COVID, just quite how much uh, loneliness is a problem. Underneath loneliness, very often, are two huge fears. I'm unknown, I'm unloved. And when I'm wrestling with who I am and my identity, those things can be crushing. Psalm 139 says, you are known. Known by God better than you even know yourself. And it's wonderful because you are loved by that God. And of course, it's creation that makes that possible because why does God know all this? Because he knit David together. He knows every molecule of his being because he made every molecule of his being and he fit them all in place. That's why his knowledge is complete and total. Now, there's lots of implications for that. One is God really does know best, which I think... If you're anything like me, we sometimes struggle to accept. But he does. It also means that our value is given to us by the God who knows us and loves us. And everyone else's value is given to them by that God as well. And that is the foundation for the dignity, worth, and value that all human beings share. Very famous line from the United States Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, I'm sorry they said men in those days, it's people. All people are created equal. And you just stop and think for a moment and you go, really? Some seem to be faster. Some seem to be stronger. Some seem to be cleverer. Were we all created equal? What they mean is we're all created equal because we all come from the same source. We all have equal worth, value, and dignity because we're all made by the same God. And if you take God and creation out of the picture, then we're certainly not equal. The only thing which safeguards the equality and dignity of every human being is the doctrine of creation. And it means that that value, worth, and dignity is independent of our abilities, what we can do. It's independent of anybody else's assessment of us, whether they think we're good or bad. Is even independent of our own assessment of ourselves. When it comes to our identity, sometimes that self-worth thing is a huge voice in the conversation. And it can overshadow all the other voices if we're not careful. And when we get down on ourselves, our sense of who we are can be crushed and crippled. Well, the doctrine of creation has to speak into that and say, hang on, there is a voice that's worth more than your own. There is an assessment of you that matters more than even your own assessment of yourself. It is the voice of the one who made you, knows you completely, and loves you. Very powerful, very valuable thing to bring into that conversation on identity. Also, just 
factoring in some other little bits and pieces, like if we think of our life and our identity as a gift, something that's been given to us freely by God, then actually we don't have to go and find out who we are. We don't have to create our own identity. And working with people of student age, uh, I do know that that can be a crippling pressure that they face. I've got to go and find out who I am. And the Bible says, no, 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 you've been given an identity by God. Uh, Green values. So not only does God give us dignity, worth, and our identity and value, he also gives that value to creation. You've probably seen pictures like this before where it says God made human beings to rule over creation. Now that has often been twisted by Christians and others out of place to say because we're rulers we can do whatever we want with the planets. Well that's rubbish. Um, Misusing creation is an offense to God. It is a lack of respect for what he has given us. And the problem with that kind of way of thinking is, again, you've left God the creator out of the picture because even though God has put us in charge of creation to some degree, made to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all that, that doesn't mean God's just left everything and said, I don't care about it anymore. He maintains a relationship with creation himself. He doesn't just say, there you go and walk away. He, he says, there you go, look after it, but I'm still here. That underpins green values. Why is it that Christians should care about this earth and environment? Well, we have a duty to God to look after the world that he's given us, a responsibility toward him, and because he is still there and he still cares about it. And as part of our worship and honor of him, it is right to do that. Just a note on that, because God is part of the picture, that means there are certain things that are ruled in and out when it comes to care for the environment. Obviously, we want to do things like recycle. Obviously, we want to do things like look for sustainable energy sources. Obviously, we want to do things that are just going to maintain and and care for the planet. But there are some voices, perhaps fringe, in the environmental movement that are advocating much more radical things that Christians should have a problem with. When you hear phrases like population control and what goes with that, whether things to do with euthanasia or mandated abortions, well, actually, those people at both ends of life, they're created by God too. They have worth and value and dignity as well. So we do have certain limits around uh, what we are willing to go with in order to take care of the planet, but nonetheless, because ultimately we're responsible to God, but nonetheless, we still have a responsibility to safeguard and care for creation. Just on that, there's a lovely little line from G.K. Chesterton. You see, the, the problem with that way of thinking, which ends up sort of being a life-denying movement... The problem with that way of thinking is that um, the world has become God and so must be safeguarded at all costs, including the cost of human life. Uh, You know, there is this worship of earth as Gaia or Mother Nature. 
And G.K. Chesterton has this great line that says, nature is not our mother. She is our sister. We have the same father. The God who made the universe made us as well. And the universe is there for his worship. Okay, I'll skip that bit um, and that bit. We are running out of time. We've run out of time. So, uh, the last thing I just want to say is this. Um, Creation is important to talk about. I said we talk about salvation probably more than we talk about creation. And therefore, we lose a little bit of our picture of the world. Uh, And this is just some of the things that come out of our doctrine of creation. But another thing is salvation is far less wonderful when you get rid of creation from the picture. Because Christ is the creator. Our savior is our maker. And that makes the cross truly staggering. The one who gave us life is the one who humanity took his life away. I mean, doesn't that make the cross just an even bigger scandal? As humanity, we murdered our maker. We murdered our maker. Christ is the goal of creation. So in one sense, uh, salvation and the restoration of all things, the picture at the end of the Bible of the new creation is entirely a renewed creation. Everything back the way it was supposed to be. And that is what Jesus came to accomplish. And you can see that in Ephesians 1.10 and in other places. That he is the one who is taking the creation to its destination, where it's supposed to be. He is the goal of creation. Um, And therefore, there is a complete connection between creation and salvation. They're not actually two separate topics at all. Salvation is the restoration of creation. Jesus is sometimes called the second Adam. There's a quotation here. I won't do it because the clock. Uh, But... Uh, that's all about how Jesus recapitulates, is the word that's used. Gets right what Adam gets wrong. Adam sins in regard to a tree. There's a test about a tree and he fails. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has a test about a tree. Will he go to the cross or not? And he passes, he obeys. And without creation, therefore, we just don't get salvation. And I've put it... Slightly, uh, you know, I hope it's not, you know, improper to say God's up to his old tricks. You see, because in creation, God has a purpose to bless humanity. And in salvation, he has a purpose to bless us by forgiving our sins. In creation, God has nothing to work with. He creates out of nothing. And in salvation, he has nothing to work with. Uh, We don't bring anything to the table in our salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, which means that it's all God's work. In fact, the Bible will talk about us as being dead in our sins and transgressions. So we need the God who can bring something out of nothing because he needs to bring us from nothing back to the life we were made for in the first place. God alone is the creator He works with no one and nothing else. And God alone, in and through Jesus Christ, is the Savior.
And so the story of salvation doesn't make sense unless it's attached to the story of creation. There we go. Relating creation and salvation. And that's why the early church father said, only the creator can recreate. Only the creator can recreate. And if salvation is recreation, new creation, then it must be God who does it and accomplishes it. Okay, lots that we got through there. Apologies, I've gone a little over. Hopefully, that'll stimulate some interesting thoughts and discussions. You can come and talk to me about it afterwards if you would like to, or you can just talk amongst yourselves. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to hand over to Jack. Father, thank you that you are the wonderful, almighty creator God, creating freely from nothing as a gift. Thank you that nonetheless you still maintain rights over your creation and an active relationship in your creation. You hold us in existence moment by moment by your very will. When we think of these things, it's difficult to actually understand and conceive of them. But they should fill us with awe and wonder and worship. And they should have radical implications for the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about this world, the way we think about your commands, the way we relate to you. It should wow us, but also compel us to think of our responsibilities before you. and our value and dignity that you have given us. We have it not because of ourselves, but because of you. And that means because you've given it, no one else can take it away. It has radical implications for this world and how we treat it. And it makes sense of salvation as well. For the God who is mighty enough to make everything out of nothing can certainly bring the dead back to life, bring the spiritually dead back to life, and the physically dead back to life, which means the sure foundation of our salvation hope is that we worship the one good, perfect creator God of all that is. May our thoughts and our hearts meditate on your goodness, be thrilled by your glory, and delight in your love. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.